Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can gather together again this afternoon as your people. Uh, we do pray that, uh, well, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful and clear uh, as I uh, teach your word. I particularly pray that uh, you would shape our thinking uh, such that we would think about what it looks like for us to live out, uh, to live with Christ as Lord as every, in every area of our lives, not just to receive him as Lord, but to live uh, with Christ as Lord, as we've just been singing, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so uh, there are a few key passages in Colossians that I think uh, help you to get your head around the whole book. Uh, one of those which I drew attention to last week is uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, and I explained last week that that passage really is all about uh, what Paul calls the supremacy of Christ. Uh, in some ways, we need to recapture this word supremacy. I don't know if you feel this, but it's sort of been like there's the white supremacist movement or that kind of thing. And I don't know if it rings. Anyway, so sometimes when the Bible talks about the supremacy of Christ, I, I get a little bit nervous. But I think it's, it's all about the supremacy of Christ. And of course, uh, in, the, in the kind of uh, biblical picture of history, uh, one day everyone will see the Lord Jesus Christ as supreme. We know that that is exactly where the world is headed. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, one day, uh, we saw last week though, those broken pieces, uh, of our, the, the pieces of our sinful and broken world. One day, all the pieces of our sinful and broken world will be reconciled, will be set right, uh, will be gathered up uh, underneath Christ as head. One day, everyone will see Christ as supreme, but today, Christ is seen as supreme in his church, his body, uh, over which he is already the head. Right? He's already supreme uh, in his church. So as Christians, as Christ's body, we're called to relate to Christ as supreme, uh, to live out the supremacy of Christ in every area of our life. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, maybe one way to think about it uh, is by looking at this bike wheel. Right? But because uh, if you uh, think about it, being a Christian, relating to Christ as supreme... Uh, is not just about uh, having Jesus as one part of your life, well, one spoke in the wheel. You know, he's somewhere out here on the periphery. It's not that he's not part of your life at all, but he's just one part, one spoke, you see. Uh, being a Christian is about uh, living uh, with Christ as supreme, it is about having Christ as the central hub of your life, right? the, the, the core of your life, the, the thing around which everyone and everything else spins. So that's what it means to, to live with Christ as supreme. So if you take that key memory verse that we just sung, Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, being a Christian is not just about uh, saying that you have Christ as Lord, receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, uh, but it's about uh, actually living with Christ Jesus as Lord. Right? Working out, well, what does it look like in this area of my life, in this area of my life, for Christ to be the central hub of my life? And so that's what all those spokes are about. But how is it that, that having Christ as supreme in my life, as the, as the central hub, uh, affects every part of my life? And that's really what Paul's unpacking, uh, for the most part, in Colossians 3 and 4. He's touching on some of those parts of our lives. What does it look like for us as Christians to live under the supremacy of Christ in our marriages, we heard last week, in our parenting? Uh, but this affects every area, right? It affects, uh, how does it affect our sexuality? How, how does it affect how we think about politics or our money or, or our studies? And of course, we're going to see today, how does it affect how we think about our work? So it's great that, that on the same day that Rob was sharing about life at work and the intersection of faith and work, here we are looking 
at this passage. It's almost like it was planned. Anyway, um, so the big question we're looking at today is uh, what uh, what do workplaces that are centred on Christ look like? Or, or maybe put differently, what do uh, individual Christian employees or employers look like as they live out their lives in the workplace with Christ as their central hub? Christ-centred employees and employers. So that, that, that's kind of the big question. Uh, but we've got another question we have to look at. Uh, if you look at this, uh, uh, the start of this passage, verse 22, uh, you'll see that Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Now, I don't want this, I don't want this to be a distraction to the big question. Right? Because I think as we read that verse, as, as kind of 21st century Australians, it's a little bit disappointing, isn't it? A bit anticlimactic. Why doesn't Paul speak against slavery? Why doesn't he just come out and condemn slavery? Of course, we should note that slavery in Paul's day was very different to what typically comes into our minds when we think about slavery. Well, we, generally speaking, we think about kind of African-American slavery, that kind of 19th, uh, 20th, uh, 19th century slavery. Right? But in Paul's day, it was quite different. For example, unlike most modern forms of slavery, slavery in Paul's day uh, had absolutely nothing racial about it. It wasn't about targeting a particular a people of a particular racial background. Right? Throughout the Roman Empire, there were slaves of all sorts of racial backgrounds. Uh, also, unlike modern slavery, where slaves had virtually no hope of being released, uh, in Paul's day, slaves had a very realistic hope of being released. Uh, in fact, early in the first century, uh, so many slaves uh, were being released that the, the Caesar at the time uh, declared that slaves could only be released if they were uh, 30 years of age uh, or older. Uh, and he had to actually put an annual cap on the number of slaves that could be released. Uh, also, whilst modern slavery uh, is almost always about kind of, uh, kind of putting people into demeaning and quite humiliating roles, tasks... Uh, slaves in Paul's day could work in quite specialised roles, quite dignified positions, like t- a teacher or uh, a doctor, the captain of a ship. Slaves could do all these things. And of course, if they were performing those kind of roles, many slave masters saw it as a, a wise business investment for them to pay for training for their slaves. Uh, so many, many slaves were, were relatively well educated. So slavery in Paul's day was really very different to what typically comes into our minds when we think about slavery. But still, the fact remains that these people that Paul uh, is speaking to are considered to be the property of their slave masters. So why doesn't Paul condemn this institution that, that promotes such inequality? Well, we should at least first note that even though Paul doesn't condemn slavery, he doesn't quite condone it in the same way. Say marriage, for example, he goes to great lengths to build up, particularly in Ephesians, but that's some of the background, Ephesians 5, like Paul builds up a big theological framework for marriage. But he never does that with slavery. He doesn't condemn it, but he doesn't really condone it in the same way. His primary concern in the New Testament, uh, both here and in Ephesians 6, uh, is not whether slavery is legitimate or not, uh, but about how having Christ as the central hub of your life ought to transform how Christian slaves and masters live within the institution. That's his primary concern. 
What does it look like to live differently within that? Uh, but still, why, why doesn't he at least mention overflow, uh, overthrowing slavery, abolishing slavery? Well, uh, four reasons, perhaps. Uh, they come from a guy, John Stott, if you want to read his commentary on Ephesians. He has four possible reasons. Uh, the first is that the early church just didn't have enough power to abolish slavery. They were pretty small, they were insignificant, they didn't have social and political clout uh, to overthrow slavery. And the second reason is that slavery was an integral part of Roman society. In fact, in most Roman cities, there were more slaves than free people. That was just the facts. So abolishing slavery would have led to the disintegration of the whole social order. Uh, One scholar by the name of G.B. Caird says, uh, ancient uh, society was economically as dependent on slavery as modern society is dependent on machinery. Uh, So anyone proposing uh, its abolition could only be regarded as a seditious fanatic. If you read the New Testament, Paul's really keen that the early church not be known as seditious fanatics. He wants Christians to have the freedom and peace to get on with living out their faith and sharing the gospel but not to be disturbing the social order too much. A third, I said before in Paul's day, most slaves actually did have a realistic hope of being released after quite a short period of time. So uh, another writer says, uh, the lack in antiquity, ancient times, right? In antiquity uh, of any uh, deep abhorrence of slavery as a social and economic evil may be explained in part by the fact that the change of legal status uh, out of slavery into liberty liberty was relatively constant and easy. So so maybe that's uh, another reason. Uh, The last reason is, as a Roman citizen, Paul probably was aware that the Roman Empire itself was taking some steps to reform slavery throughout throughout the first century. Uh, So John Stoddy says, a sweeping... Humanitarian changes had been introduced into the Roman world by the first century AD, which led to radically improved treatment of slaves. Steadily, slaves were granted many of the legal rights enjoyed by by free people, uh, including the right to marry, have a family, and the right to own property. Uh, In AD 20, a decree of the Roman Senate specified that slave criminals were uh, were to be tried in the same way as free people, free criminals, if you like. So as Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, as he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, uh, he's probably aware uh, that changes in the wind. You know, the, the Roman Empire is actually doing something about the treatment of slaves. So John Stott concludes, he says, uh, while we can't defend the indolence or cowardice of Christian centuries right, throughout history, which saw the social, and, and, uh, social evil of slavery and failed to eradicate it, we can at the same time rejoice that the gospel immediately began, even in this first century, to undermine the institution. And I like this picture. He says, uh, the gospel lit a fuse, which at long last did lead to the explosive destruction of slavery. So if you read this passage carefully, if you read the New Testament passages about slavery uh, carefully, uh, it is like Paul is lighting a fuse that one day leads to the destruction of of slavery. Uh, three things, just real brief, and then we'll get into the rest of the passage. Uh, for example, it's quite revolutionary that Paul even addresses these slaves. Right now, as kind of equal 
members of the church community. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't pretend they don't exist like much of society would have. He actually speaks to them. And he speaks to them, uh, speaks to them in a way that actually does promote some sense of equality. I say that because he continually reminds Christian slaves and their masters that they've got the same heavenly master. So they're on the same footing before the Lord Jesus, you see. That he keeps reminding them of that. And with that repeated reference to Christ, their heavenly master, uh, Paul puts the status of earthly masters in perspective. You know, like, sure, you might have some slaves, but the world doesn't revolve around you. You're not the supreme master, Paul says. It's the Lord Jesus who's the supreme master. And so those are the sort of ideas that, that John Stott says uh, lit a fuse that ultimately would lead to the destruction of slavery. Anyway, that's a fair bit about that first question. Some of you probably weren't interested. You're like, oh, yeah, slaves, the Bible talks about that. Uh, others, perhaps, that's useful. Anyway, uh, for the big question, what do workplaces look like that are genuinely centred on Christ? First, what does it look like for Christian employees? Uh, yeah, for Christian employees. Oh, I should just say, in applying this to the workplace, the modern workplace, obviously I'm not saying that your relationship with your boss or vice versa is exactly the same as this passage. Right? It's just the closest parallel we have. So there are some differences. What about Christ-centered employees? How do they relate to their employers? Uh, well, first, look there in verse 22. What should they do? Uh, it's pretty clear. Paul says they should obey their earthly masters. Right? In our context, obey your boss, your manager, your employer. Uh, what does it mean to obey? We talked a bit about that last week with, with uh, children and parents. Uh, I think there's at least three parts of obedience. The first is that you actually have to listen to your boss. It's hard to obey them if you don't listen to them. Uh, you can listen to them by attending the meetings you're supposed to or replying to emails in a timely manner, you know, not ignoring them, uh, returning phone calls as promptly as you can, being attentive when they're talking to you. You're eager to listen to your boss. That's the first part. You listen to them and then you're eager to do what they say. Well, you might ask questions of them, you might clarify, you might push back, you might even present an alternate way forward, but in general, you complete the tasks, you execute the plans, you do what your boss asks you to do. And as far as possible, you do it when they ask you to do it. That's the third part. Not when you're good and ready, not at the, the deadline that you think's realistic, but as far as possible, you respect their deadlines and their, their timelines for that project. Now, sometimes there's a bit of push-pull in that. You know, they might be completely unrealistic. You've got to have a conversation with them. Right? But in general, that's what obedience look like, looks like. You listen to your boss, uh, you do what they ask, and you do it when they ask you to do it. Uh, and Paul says uh, Christian employees are to obey their earthly masters like that in everything. Uh, once again, the same as with kids. That's pretty comprehensive. Uh, of course, you don't obey your earthly master if obeying them means disobeying your heavenly master. If they're asking you to do something that's unethical or un unbiblical. Right? Yeah, as a Christian, uh, you know that it's Christ who's at the centre of your life, not your boss. Right? So it's obedience to him that trumps. Right? It's pleasing Christ that matters most, not pleasing your boss. So there, there, there can be a bit of a tension there. Right? But in general, 
Paul says we're to obey our uh, employer, employers like this uh, in everything. So that's what we're to do. Uh, when are we to do it? Uh, have a look there at the next sentence. Uh, Paul says uh, it's not only when your boss's eye is on you, impl- implied, it's all the time. Uh, as I was looking at uh, thinking about this during the week, it actually reminded me of a Seinfeld episode. I don't know if anyone watches Seinfeld uh, these days or remembers it. It's probably on like seven uh, flicks or something at you know seven o'clock at night, one of those extra channels. Anyway, a Seinfeld episode called The Nap. Uh, and George in this Seinfeld episode, he has a new job. I can't remember if it's the Yankees job or not. Uh, he has this job and, and he's really tired, uh, mostly because he's staying up all night watching movie uh, trilogies back to back and all that kind of thing. And uh, so he's really tired and he gets to work and all he needs is a nap. Right, he just needs a nap. Uh, but he's in a new office with glass windows that look out over the rest of the workplace. Everyone could see if he has, kind of falls asleep and has a nap on his desk. Uh, and then he thinks, the perfect place to have a nap would be under my desk. Uh, and coincidentally, at the same time, Jerry's having some work done on his house uh, by this handyman. So he talks to the handyman, he gets the handyman in, makes these modifications under the desk, you know, he expands the space a bit, uh, puts in a little shelf so he can have an alarm clock, uh, and, you know, builds in a, a little drawer with some blankets, uh, and he just gets in the habit of having a nap under his desk until one day his boss comes in, his boss is looking for him, uh, and his boss says, oh, oh, I'll just wait here for him. His boss is sitting there in the desk chair, George is napping under the desk, of course, he calls Jerry in a panic and, and um, anyway, asks Jerry to call in a bomb threat uh, to the workplace so that everyone's evacuated. But, of course, the boss says, quick, everyone under the desk, you see. Anyway, what's the point? Don't just work when your boss's eye, on, eye is on you. You know, well, we can do this, can't we? You're fooling around on social media. You've got the cricket on the window in the background. You, you move it off when someone comes in. You may be napping under the desk, right? And the boss comes in, oh, yeah, I'm busy, you know. Right? That's not how we're to work as Christian employees because we know that even when our earthly master's eye is not on us, our heavenly master's eye is. You know, the repeated refrain in Revelation, Jesus says, I know your deeds. Now, on one level, that's encouraging, isn't it? When you're working hard and no one's noticing it, The Lord Jesus notices it. That's really encouraging. But it's also got an edge to it, doesn't it? When you're not working hard because you think no one's watching, the Lord Jesus is watching. Your heavenly master is watching. So don't only work when your boss's eye is on you. Work all the time. Be loyal to your boss in that way. And that moves us to why we should work. Paul makes it really clear that it's not to try and get the favour of our boss, our employer. Our primary motivation, Paul says, for obeying our employer, for working hard for them, whether they're watching us or not, uh, is not so that we can receive their favour, right? to, to curry favour with them. That's the language of people-pleasing. Right? That, that's not our primary motivation. We're not people-pleasers. Paul says, uh, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Uh, sincerity of heart there literally uh, means singleness of heart, simplicity of heart. What Paul's saying is uh, the Christian works with a single-hearted devotion to their heavenly master, to Christ. Well, that's what they're driven by. Their heart is driven by a desire to please Christ 
their heavenly master, not their boss, not their earthly master. In fact, I would say that if your primary motivation in the workplace is pleasing your boss, uh, it'll actually have quite adverse effects on your work. Uh, In general, it'll mean that you'll be constantly anxious about pleasing your boss. right? You've made them the centre of your life. How could you possibly disappoint them, you see? That promotes real anxiety. You'll be so desperate to please them uh, that you might even be tempted to disobey your heavenly master. Whatever it takes to please the one who is at the centre of your life. And of course, when you don't get their approval, when you don't get their favour, when you fail them, which you will, uh, you experience that, not not just to be a bit disappointing, but to be absolutely devastating. Because you've been single-hearted, not in your devotion to please your heavenly master, but in your devotion to please them. Uh, Instead, notice Paul says that uh, as we go about our work, our hearts should be full of reverence for the Lord. Uh, That word reverence literally meaning uh, fear. It's it's another word for fear. He's not saying as Christians that we ought to be terrified of the Lord Jesus. He's gone to great lengths into Colossians to explain that the Lord Jesus is the one who saw our sin and failure and weakness and gave his life for us on the cross. We've got nothing to fear of his judgment. We're secure in his love. We do not have to be terrified of him. But we should, our hearts should be full of appropriate awe and respect and reverence for him. So maybe one question to think about is who is it that you really revere in your workplace? Who is it that you revere? Uh, Perhaps a way of thinking about this idea of revering someone uh, is this magnifying glass. Who has one of these these days? I don't know. But I did. Uh, And so maybe it's because I'm vision impaired. Uh, Anyway, so you have a magnifying glass because uh, when, when you revere someone, Uh, It's usually them that loom largest in your life. It's like they're magnified, she said. When they walk into the office, they walk onto the ward, they come into the lunchroom, uh, it's like like what they think of you, what they say to you is disproportionately important. It's just ridiculous how much you care about what they think of you. Because your heart is full of reverence for them not for the Lord Jesus. They seem massive to you and the Lord Jesus in that moment seems so small. Paul says, as Christians, we work with our hearts full of reverence for Christ, our heavenly master. And when we're doing that in the workplace, uh, it uh, it actually has wonderful positive effects. I think it'll mean that you're more confident in the workplace. Why? Because your heart is full of the one who saw your sin and failure and weakness and yet was willing to die for you. And so who cares what that person thinks? Who cares, really, in the end, what your boss thinks? You're loved, you're secure. Whatever they say about your project. That brings confidence, I think. And on the flip side, uh, if if your kind of vision is magnifying Christ, if you're revering him, uh, it will make you more humble in the workplace. Because you'll see that the one who had to die for you, not just as an option, the Son of Man must suffer. 
Right? You see the one that had to die for you, for your sins on the cross. So whatever someone thinks of you in the workplace, even if you're getting every promotion under the sun, kicking every goal, you'll remain humble in the workplace. And from a place of confidence and humility, I think you'll be more motivated in the workplace. Right? Because you won't be motivated out of the fear that, uh, of getting the approval or, or not having the approval of your earthly master, but out of the deep thanks that you already have your heavenly master's approval. Right? That, that, that's actually a more powerful motivating force. And look in verses 24 and 25. Paul makes it clear uh, that it's your heavenly master's approval that really matters. It's his opinion that matters most. Uh, he says, uh, work in this way, you know, uh, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Uh, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Right, so as we go about our daily work, Paul says uh, we're to have this eternal perspective, not primarily motivated by the punishments that our boss might give out, by losing uh, that client, that bonus, losing our job even, are not primarily motivated by the rewards our boss might give out, right? that, the pay rise, the promotion, the, the new project that you want to do. Right? Those punishments and rewards are fine. Uh, it's wonderful if you get the rewards and less so the punishments. right? Uh, it's fine, right? but not primarily motivated by them because it's our heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who hands out the ultimate punishments and rewards. That's what Paul's saying. It's his approval that matters most. And so at the end of verse 24, Paul says, serve the Lord Christ. Right? Our translation, uh, the NIV, translate that as a statement. Right? You see, it's, there. it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Uh, it could be translated as a command. I think, it's, I think it's better, actually. I think Paul's exhorting the people, encouraging them, saying, serve the Lord Christ. Right, serve him because you know that he will reward you with an eternal inheritance. Right, not just some temporary payment, but an eternal inheritance. Incredibly encouraging for these slaves, right? Slaves who had no inheritance, but as children of God, they've got an eternal inheritance. Eternal life with God and his people, you see. Paul says, but keep things in perspective. You've got a glorious inheritance. What do you care about that bonus or that pay rise, you see? Uh, and serve the Lord Christ because he gives out the uh, 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 eternal punishments. Right? Ultimately, it's Christ who will settle every account. It's Christ who will pay back everyone who's done wrong, slave or master, employer or employee. There's no favourites. So serve the Lord Christ. Serve the Lord Christ. That's Christ-centered employees, right? Employees uh, who are concerned with working out what does it look like in my workplace, in this situation, in this decision, in this conversation to live with Christ as the central hub of my life. That's the big idea. Uh, what about employers? Chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Masters, Paul says, provide your slaves uh, with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, I think it's easy for us to miss perhaps how radical this is. Uh, in Paul's day, uh, a master would never have considered that they had binding responsibilities towards their slaves. 
Uh, really, I mean, maybe in the first century it was starting to come on their radar, but really, what is right and fair? I'm sure a slave owner, a slave owner might have chosen to educate their slaves, but that wasn't because their slaves had a right to education. It was just a, a wise business decision. It was almost completely self-interested. But here Paul says that when you become a Christian, when you're a Christian master, you do have responsibilities towards your slaves because Christ is your heavenly master. And so you should treat your slaves in a way that is right and fair. I don't know what you think when you read that, right and fair. Uh, When I first read it uh, earlier this week, uh, I was thinking, but... Surely Christ, our heavenly master, has treated us in a way that goes way beyond what's right and fair. Isn't it? Like, what's the parallel there? But then I remember that in Paul's day, remember, like we talked about this just before, Paul's day, slaves had virtually no rights. So when Paul tells Christian masters to treat their slaves in a way that's right and fair, he is actually going way beyond what was culturally or, or legally expected in his day. And in fact, this command would have been really quite hard for Christian masters to obey. To us, it sounds, oh, of course, that's what masters ought to do. But this would have been quite hard. You imagine the kind of uh, slave owners hanging out together and the non-Christians saying to the, to the Christian one, uh, don't you realise how much more money you could make if you just treat your slaves like this? Well, you wouldn't be breaking any laws. Like, well, why are you treating your slaves so well, you see? You're crazy. But Paul says that despite that kind of social pressure, despite losing business perhaps, losing uh, social networks and connections, Christian masters should treat their slaves in a way that is right and fair. So what about you? Perhaps you, uh, you yourself employ people, you're an employer, uh, maybe you're in a position of management in your workplace, some sort of leadership position. Uh, how is it that you treat those who are under you in the workplace? Because this verse means that no, no matter who you, uh, your workers are, you should treat them in a way that is right and fair. There are a couple of implications of that. Uh, one is... Uh, that you shouldn't just give your workers uh, the minimum, the kind of absolute bare minimum pay or conditions. Well, I mean, maybe that's all you can afford sometimes, I get that. Uh, but where possible, I think Paul says that, that we're called to go kind of above and beyond what is culturally and legally expected, not just to make our workplaces barely legal, you see. And this verse also impacts how we view people in the workplace. Right? We shouldn't uh, view people in our workplace as merely cheap labour or kind of money-making units for us, depersonalised kind of robotic task machines. Right? If you're an employer, if you're over someone, if you're supervising someone, don't view them like that. We, should, uh, we shouldn't show favouritism in, uh, in the workplace, this verse encourages us. Or certainly the last verse of of chapter 3, where we see that Christ, our heavenly master, doesn't show favouritism. So if you're in leadership in your workplace, uh, please treat everyone who's under you in an equal and fair way. Whether it's the receptionist or the the kind of IT repair guy who comes in or the cleaner, whether it's the new grad at the bottom of the food chain, you treat them in a way that is right and fair. a way that shows that you know that they're a precious creation in God's image, deserving of treatment of dignity and respect and generosity. 
uh, of course, all of us struggle with this. It's easy for me. I don't have a very big workplace, or maybe it's not. You know, you go and talk to Anna, and she'll kind of say, "Whoa, conversations with Aaron later." But uh, like, we do struggle with this. I think. I think Christian employees struggle with it uh, because we just don't like being under the authority of our boss. We just don't like it. And in fact, in general, we are convinced that our workplaces would be so much better if only we were in control. If our boss just listened to us a little bit more, things would run so much more smoothly. But uh, of course, if our vision is full of Christ, you see, if Christ is the central hub of our lives, uh, then we'll see that we're not that good at being in control. I'm not that good at being in control. Well, when I insist on being in control rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Christ, my heavenly master, ends up having to die for me on the cross. That's the essence of sin. Uh, so as Christian employees, we, we ought to uh, have a sober perspective on our capacity to be in control and we should ex- respect and obey those who are in control. Our boss, our employer. Our Christian employees also struggle with this, I think. I think one of the main reasons is that, that we, we kind of think, well, I've worked really hard for this position. So why shouldn't I enjoy it, you know? Why shouldn't I just flaunt it a bit, even if it makes someone else feel like, you know, like I see this like with, um, in some workplaces where people I, I meet up with uh, and they're like maybe four or five years in to whatever profession it is, a, a lawyer, a health professional, and they get the new grad and the attitude is almost like, well, I survived, so see if you can. Like, that's the, that's the kind of, like, you're going to earn your stripes. I'm going to make sure you, like, I'm like, I'm just not convinced that that's the attitude of someone who's, uh, an employer whose life is centred on Christ. Right? If you're an employer and you're looking to Christ, if he's the central hub of your life, uh, you'll see that the one with the ultimate position of authority and glory and status was willing to give all that up to be treated like a slave for you and your sins. Philippians 2. Right, so, so, maybe this is a bit pointed, but who are you to look down your nose at someone else in the workplace as if you're better than them? Oh, you might be a, a more qualified or something, or more experienced, but let's not act like we're morally superior. Let's treat people with fairness, what is fair and right and dignified. Being a Christian is not just about having Christ as one part of your life. Lots of us live like this. You know, we're okay with Christ being supreme for two hours on Sunday. We sing all about it, but then we forget about, well, what does it look like for Christ to be supreme when I'm having that conversation? Right? Because Christ, Christ, we've got a small vision of Christ. He's over here on the edge of our life. But Paul says being a Christian is about living with Christ as supreme, with him as the central hub of your life, working out what it looks like in every part of your life, including your work, uh, to live out the supremacy of Christ. So I'm going to pray that we'd increasingly be able to do that in our workplaces, right? not just living with Christ as supreme when we're gathered together as his people on Sunday, but when we're scattered as his people uh, Monday to Friday. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Uh, that addresses uh, each and every part of our lives. Uh, We thank you that uh, 
uh, you're concerned about how we would live uh, with Christ as Lord in every part of our life. Uh, We know that he's supreme. We confess that he is Lord. Uh, Help us, Father, uh, in the nitty-gritty of our daily work lives uh, to be reflecting on what what does it mean for me to live with Christ as Lord in this conversation, uh, with this decision on the table. Uh, Help us, Father, to be driven uh, primarily by pleasing our Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Master, and not by pleasing our boss or anyone else in the workplace, Uh, that we might be deeply secure in our Lord Jesus' love for us, that we might be deeply humble as we understand our sin, and that we might be motivated to work hard in our workplaces uh, because we're uh, deeply thankful for what our Lord Jesus has done for us. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.